behaviors are our litmus test for belonging, the result is that nobody really belongs because none of us agree on everything. We're pretending. The result is a fractured and broken church failing to embody Christ to a fractured and broken world. Let's jump into our text today. Uh, throughout the scriptures, uh, if you remember, we are in Ephesians. Yeah. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to go back and watch that. Uh, we are in Ephesians. We started our series last week and looked at uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Uh, today we're in 2, verses 11 through 22. But throughout the scriptures, there is, as far as I can tell, no greater divide no greater separation among people than that of the Jew and Gentile division. Yeah? That is, the Jewish people and everyone who is not Jewish people. Right? The chosen and everyone who is not chosen. Amen? This division, this separation, it comes up a number of times throughout the entirety of the biblical narrative, but it really comes to a head in the early church. And understandably so, right? We've seen this before in our discussion of Acts 15 and uh, Peter's and Paul's encounters with the first Gentile converts around that time. But even so, the problem persisted this Jew and Gentile divide. Frankly, I'm not really sure it ever went away, really. Anti-Semitism has been around for a long time. But our faith, this Christian faith, it began as a small sect of Judaism. The first Christians were 100% religiously and ethnic, ethnically Jewish. It's important to keep that in mind. But we Gentiles, we non-Jews, we were grafted into this thing, to use the biblical language. Whether Jews were looking down on Gentiles or Gentiles were looking down on Jews, uh, the reality was a persistent problem in much of Paul's writing in the New Testament. He addresses this time and again. It comes up here in Ephesians as well, and I think, I think, it, I think it speaks to our current time too albeit in a little bit of a different way. So again, last week we began our study of Ephesians. We said that uh, this letter is about ecclesiology. What's that? It means the church, right? It's about the church. It's the underlying question in this text is, how do we, the church, live right here and right now? What does it mean, what does it look like to be the body of Christ? And in uh, verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1, we saw that however Paul will ultimately answer this big grand question, it starts with the recognition of our status as adopted sons and daughters of the king of the cosmos, liberated from bondage by the blood of Jesus, and given the spirit of promise as a pledge for our future inheritance. That's the starting point. In Christ, we are chosen for adoption and promised an inheritance. That's where he begins this argument, if you will. So on to our reading. Chapter 2, verse 11. So then. So then. Remember, what we're reading now is to be understood in light of what we've read so far. When you see so then, that's a pretty good indication, right? 
but it, again, it is in light of this adoption as, as sons and daughters of the king, in light of what God has accomplished in Christ. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, remember that Jew-Gentile divide, you Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. We're going to pause here. The big point here so far is that Christ has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, right? As mentioned previously throughout the biblical narrative, there was no way to be more apart. There was no way to be more separate than this divide of Jew and non-Jew, chosen and non-chosen. And Paul is using this dividing wall metaphorically here. But this was actually a very literal thing as well. The Greek here for dividing wall reads literally barrier of the fence. We have an image of the, the temple here, I believe. Yes. You can see in this image that the Jewish temple had a big outer wall and that first big large courtyard. Yeah, that was called the court of Gentiles. This was a space where Gentile converts to the religion of Judaism could be in the temple. Within this courtyard was another wall with another courtyard and the actual temple sanctuary. And around this second wall was a balustrade fence that you can see there along the bottom. This barrier of the fence. And it had an inscription on it. I think we have a an image of the inscription tablet as well. On this inscription, here's what it said. If you can't read, just follow along. Foreigners must not enter inside the balustrade or into the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It's hard to get more hostile than a death threat. Amen? For people who were Gentiles by birth, to borrow, to borrow Paul's phrase from verse 11, this fence served as a constant reminder that no matter how much you might want to follow God, you're still far off. You are so close. You're in the temple court, but you're still so very, very far from the heart of God. You are not Jewish. You are not chosen. You have no inheritance in the age to come because you're a Gentile. When you hear stuff like that, it kind of makes sense where a lot of this hostility came from. But Christ, by his flesh, has obliterated this dividing wall. God in Christ has brought us near. 
The rest of this passage is so stinking neat. Verse 15, he has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances. Whoa. That he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two. Thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. Thus putting to death that hostility through it. So God's desire it seems to me, is to create one new humanity and to reconcile all of us, both Jews and Gentiles, to God as one body. We follow? As far as God is concerned, it seems to me, this Jew and Gentile divide is gone. If it persists, it's our doing, not his. I believe he's made his intentions quite clear. This is where it gets interesting. Verse 17. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This makes me think of Jesus' parable of the 99 and the 1. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. See that flip? But you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. Quick aside, I know a lot of folks like to, to use that, that, that foundation of the apostles and prophets, talking about the New Testament uh, gifts of apostle and prophet. I don't think that's what's in view there. I think that means, again, because we're talking Jews and Gentiles, apostles and prophets, we're talking New Testament believers and Old Testament believers. With Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Amen. Notice this turn of phrase. We've gone from destroying a barrier to what? Building up something else. From demolition to construction. You see the flip? Starting in verse 19, there is a repetition of the Greek word oikos. Oikos. It's an interesting word. It's often used interchangeably to mean a family, uh, a family's land, or the home itself. In one sense, it is like the lineage of a family. In another, it's like the place and structure in which a family resides. In verse 19, it's translated as household. In verse 20, it's built. In verse 21, it's structure. In verse 22, it shows up twice as built and dwelling place. Five times this word is used in one paragraph. From destroying a wall to building a family, a home. Christ has destroyed this dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles and built us into a household, a family, which God inhabits. This was done, Paul says, in his flesh. Through the cross of Christ for these first Christians, choosing to continue as though this barrier were still there, choosing division instead of unity was to deny the cross. You see that? Choosing division over unity was to deny the work of Jesus. Denying the reality of this new humanity is to deny Jesus himself. 
I don't see any way around that, really. So what about us? What can this speak to us today? There's the obvious rejection of anti-Semitism, right? That is satanic. End of story. It's still a problem today, but, but again, I want to broaden our scope, though. Is there an underlying principle here that could apply more directly to our time? What would Paul, or Jesus for that matter, want to say to us today in this same vein? Remember, the fundamental question is, is how do we, the church, live right here, right now? What does it mean? What does it look like to be the body of Christ? We live in times of great hostility, don't we? Great division. The constant tension in the air right now is so thick, I feel like I could reach out and grab it sometimes. Many of us feel this deeply. And it, and it pushes us to react one way or another. Uh, it's made some of us quite hostile towards other people. Uh, others make efforts to kind of feign cordiality or polite. Yeah? But even under the polite surface, we are as divided as can be. Everyone is pointing fingers at everyone else, not just in politics, but even in our churches. I mean, look, we all have our convictions, right? Our ideals, our beliefs, and that's fine. It's fine. But demonizing one another is never the answer. Instead, it seems to me that this sort of behavior, the demonizing thing, that is the Antichrist spirit at work in our world. Notice in this passage that Paul never says that Jews have to stop being Jews. Notice that he never says that Gentiles have to stop being Gentiles. The church council in Acts 15, we talked about that. It affirmed as much. It's not the differences that Christ destroyed. Because it's not the differences that separate us. We still get to be who and what we are. Let's look again at verse 14. Christ has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. Our respective ideas and convictions are not the dividing wall. The hostility is the wall. You see that? Hear this again very clearly. Our differences aren't the wall. Our differences aren't what separate us. At least they're not supposed to be. Our disposition about those differences is the wall. The wall is choosing to divide based on those differences. You see it? It isn't the differences that Christ obliterates. It's the removal of hostility for which Christ's sacrifice paves the way. It is recognizing that we can be different and yet one. Yeah? Sameness nor uniformity are Christ's goal. Our differences are to be celebrated. Those things that make each of us uniquely each of us are to be celebrated. It's not uniformity. It's unity. Unity within and in spite of the ways we are different. Because we aren't focused on the ways we are different, but on our common love 
Amen? Church, the body of Christ is supposed to be that thing that we do where the other people don't look like us, act like us, vote like us, or whatever else. It's supposed to be that thing. It might be the only place in our lives where this is really the case. The only reason that we are all together is because of Jesus. We do this only in response to what God has done for us. This is not something that we do naturally. Yeah? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2.8. I'm as guilty of this as anyone. (laughs) This desire to other, to demonize. The solution, at least for those who believe, is found in the first few words of that same verse, verse 14. We put that up. For he is our peace. The solution is to center ourselves on Christ, who is our peace. The solution is to be a Jesus-centered people. That's a phrase I've used a lot lately. And we'll dig in now to kind of what that really means, or at least start to scratch the surface of what that really means. Uh, In their book, Missional Church, Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch use the analogy of fences and wells to illustrate this point. Let's say that you are a small-scale cattle farmer with like, oh, 20 acres of land, yeah? You'll undoubtedly build a fence around your land to keep your cattle in, yeah? It keeps the cattle in, the other animals out. Your cattle are safe. They'll never wander too far off because they can't, (laughs) right? They can't. But let's say instead that you're a cattle rancher with thousands of acres of land. Building a fence around all of that land doesn't always make sense. It may be prohibitively time-consuming or just expensive. So instead of building fences, they build wells wells. Now your cattle can roam and wander wherever they please. They'll not likely ever wander too far, however, because their life depends on their proximity to the nearest well, the nearest water source, their literal source of life. They're never going to go too far away from that. This is the difference between being a bounded set community and a centered set community. Many groups and societies exist in both of these ways, and they have their pros and cons. A centered set community is simply a a, a group of people who care about the same things, yeah? Who are drawn to a common center, like the cattle and their water source. As an example, we can go just about anywhere in the state of Arkansas, Uh, in just about any demographic or psychographic grouping and find people who are Hogs fans. Yeah? All of these different sorts of people can have one love in common, their love for the Hogs. Anyone can be a Hog fan. Some can be fanatical. Like they know all of the players' names and the stats and all these things, right? And some can be just kind of into it, like me. (laughs) But all are welcome. All are Hogs fans. 
The hogs are the water well. At any one time, we can be closer to, like fanatics, or further away from, like just kind of into it, that source of life. A bounded set community, on the other hand, uh, is a set of people that are clearly marked off from those who do not belong to that community, usually by adhering to a particular set of uh, beliefs or behaviors. You can think of these beliefs and behaviors as a border wall, a fence around the community, like the farmer's fence. It's very effective at keeping insiders in and outsiders out, right? You can find hog fans in plenty of other states, right? Even Texas. But you know what you can't find in Texas? Arkansans. Because to be an Arkansan is to live within the border of the state of Arkansas. You can visit, but you aren't one of us unless you live here. That's the requirement. You follow? This bounded set mentality has been, for the most part, though not universally, uh, the way churches have operated throughout much of history, though not entirely. And the result is now more than 45,000 Christian denominations globally. 45,000. We have divided over everything from alcohol to whether or not we have instruments in worship to when Jesus returns. Yes, yes, I don't know. <laughs> but the point is that when beliefs and behaviors are our litmus test for belonging, the result is that nobody really belongs because none of us agree on everything. We're pretending. The result is a fractured and broken church failing to embody Christ to a fractured and broken world. Amen? Between our passage from last week and our passage this week, Paul says this, God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In short, Jesus is better. <laughs> right? Jesus is bigger, better than everything. He's above everything. When a common love, this Christ who is far above all, is our test for belonging, we can recognize that everyone is at any given time moving toward or away from the well of life, the center that is Jesus Christ. Everyone belongs, but not everyone is at the same place in their journey toward the center. The concern of a centered set church is not convincing people to believe in a particular way, but withdrawing people closer to Jesus, the center, and allowing the Spirit to do what the Spirit does. Maybe it looks a bit like it did in Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. 
They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. You'll notice one of the things that they devoted themselves to was the apostles' teaching. I'm not saying today that doctrine or beliefs are not important. They are. Yeah? I have strong <laughs> beliefs and convictions <laughs> about a host of things. Very strong. <laughs> but what I'm not going to do ever is use those to determine whether or not you are on my team. You follow? You understand? The cure for division is to center on Christ, who is our peace, who in his flesh tore down the wall of hostility which separates us. Christ, who is gathering all things in heaven and earth, as we read last week, is drawing all people to himself to be built together into a dwelling place for God. And he himself is our cornerstone. Without him as our center of gravity, it all falls apart. It all fractures. It's 45,000 denominations in the world. So to recap, how do we live right here, right now? So far, here's what Paul says. As adopted sons and daughters of the king, we seek to live Jesus-centered lives, both individually and corporately.